We launched a new Ringer podcast this week. It's called New York, New York with John Jastrzemski. It is going to be at least three days a week. He's doing four this week, but reacting to all the New York sports stuff and a lot of gambling stuff too. Check it out. New York, New York, only on the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Nissan. Get ready to level up your adventures with the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder built to navigate you to some of Earth's most awe-inspiring spots with seven drive modes with all the power you need. Get the thrill of the drive in every moment of your journey with the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com as well as the Ringer podcast network. If you love Taylor Swift, my buddy Nathan Hubbard and the one and only Nora Princiati have been breaking down every single Taylor Swift album on a show called Every Single Album, which you can find on Ringer Dish. That is coming to a close pretty soon because they've run through every Taylor album except for there's, I think, one more plus all the re-releases. So check that out on Ringer Dish. That's also where you can find me and Dave Jacoby breaking down the challenge. We only have a couple episodes left but that we're doing that on Wednesday nights. And then new rewatchables posted, Lethal Weapon. That one is up. One of the most influential action movies ever. Me and Chris Ryan breaking it down. Coming up, I have an action-packed podcast for you. The Ringers, Danny Kelly, is going to talk about all the NFL draft movements. Specifically, can the Patriots get Justin Fields? Oh, my God. Uh, we're also going to talk to my buddy Joe House of the Fairway Rolling Podcast. We're going to get some master's picks from him. And then the one, the only, the legend, David Allen Greer, who I can't remember if he's ever on an ESPN podcast with me, but he has never been on a Ringer podcast. And uh, he's one of my all-time favorites. And we talked about a whole bunch of great stuff. This is a really, really, really good podcast. I can't believe it's free. I can't believe it. First, Pearl Jam. All right, we are taping this. It is uh, 11.30 Pacific time. So if there's another massive NFL trade today, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, if there's something <laughs> on the level of Sam Darnold going to the Panthers, perfect time to bring in Danny Kelly from The Ringer. He is uh, one of our main NFL guys. You can hear him on The Ringer NFL show. He does an awesome draft guide for us with mock drafts that change. He sent me a little special top 15 mock draft. Um, yeah. You're kind of between mock drafts on the website. So he did a little little tweak. I, I'm starting here. Three days ago, I gave in. I talked <laughs> myself into Justin Fields to the Patriots. Yes. McShay, yes. McShay laid, the, laid the seeds. He had the trade up. Everybody went nuts about the Pats trading up to 11 to get Fields. I'm already on record as saying I love Fields. I don't understand mm -hmm. why he's dropping out of the top four. And now 
there were real signs of hope here for the Patriots from looking at the guide and you had they you had them, you think they have to trade to number eight, Washington, to I get think it, up there. Yeah. It's either going to be, well, there's three spots they could trade. Number four to the Falcons, because it sounds like the Falcons are open for business potentially with if the right deal comes along. Number seven to the Lions or number eight with the Carolina Panthers. And I think all three of those uh, potential scenarios make sense for the for the Patriots to do that. Now, I guess I was going to ask you this. Do you think the Patriots will kind of go against their typical MO and trade up in this scenario? I think after having a year without a quarterback, you kind <laughs> yeah. of remember, oh, wait, th- that Things position change. is important. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I was looking. We have the top three, and it really seems like Mac Jones is going to the Niners. We can talk about that later. And Atlanta yeah. is the first. There's there's three swing teams right now. Atlanta is the first swing team at four. Mm-hmm. You had in the mock draft you sent me that you're still tinkering with, you think they take Kyle Pitts if they keep the pick. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think ultimately funny. he's the best player. He's he's the most talented non-quarterback in this draft, I think. He is, and I think I've seen more people saying this over and over, he is just like a truly special prospect. You don't see many guys like him. And when you look at some of the other positions like tackle or receiver, even these classes are very deep where Pitts is basically he's in a tier of zone by far at the tight end position. In fact, you could probably call him just a pass catcher. And even then he might be a tier in in a tier of zone. So that's kind of why I went there. I think the Falcons are one of those teams that could trade back. Um, They are also in the running for a quarterback. Honestly, like there's some people that believe that they'll take a quarterback here. And and it sounds like um, based on a, a, a report by Mortensen, the other day, said it sounds like the GM Terry Fontenot and head coach Arthur Smith are sort of in disagreement about what they want to do here. So I think Arthur Smith thinks that Matt Ryan's still got some life in his legs, you know, and, and it could last another couple of seasons. Gives them a floor, which I kind of tend to agree with. And honestly, like the cap situation there would point to them sticking with Ryan and kind of building that foundation. So ultimately, I went sort of with the head coach on this one. I think that they're going to either trade back here or take an elite prospect like Kyle Pitts and kind of just go from there. If you're Arthur Smith, you're not like in the situation that Shanahan was in with the 49ers where you're like, I know I have this job for the next seven years, whatever. I'm going to craft the team I want. If you're him, you're like, Matt Ryan's still good. Mm -hmm. I'll have a chance to compete. I could get basically the best non-quarterback in this draft. We were a team that was weirdly competitive for what our record was last year. And you add a couple pieces and two savvy free agent signings, whatever. And then all of a sudden, maybe we're a 10 and 16, who knows versus we right. take a quarterback project as has been mentioned, ad nauseum all over the place. You have 50, 50 chance when you're drafting a quarterback, basically those are the odds. Those right. are the odds for the last 10 years. Those are the odds for the last 20 years, the last 50 years. It's a one in two chance. You, you struck oil and you even think like the Sam Darnold draft, that was probably less than 50% if Sam's right. basically the swing. So if you're him, you're like, let's just keep Mac, Matt Ryan, take pits. I've actually been studying this draft and you know, I don't watch college football, but I, I am able to throw myself <laughs> into a draft. The pits yeah. thing to me, pits seems like the all time no brainer pick where you just look at, look at the big picture of the NFL and you go, all right, Kelsey and Gronk were game changing people at their position for the last yeah. 12 years. And all those dudes did were playing playoff games as one of the key players in their team, everyone else was jealous of them. And then you go in a, in a fantasy situation, you're in an auction, you pay $28 for Kelsey or 22 or 31, whatever it is. And he's the highest paid tight end. 
and it seems high and you're like, wow, I can't put, but then it's like, everybody <laughs> wants him the whole season. You could trade You don't him. regret it. You, you never, never regret, regret it. it. So the Pitts thing is like, <laughs> I just think yeah. they could take Pitts. They would never regret it. But the question for me is, if there's a premium on these last two quarterbacks and the spots are four, seven Detroit, eight Carolina, is Atlanta better moving back? Right. They could pick up a lot of draft capital, I think, at this spot. A future first, probably. I mean, if when you're talking about this draft in particular, it's almost like this is the first pick. You know, I know, I realize that three guys are off the board here, and so it, it dilutes what's left. But they can really, like, any team that wants, like, to come up for a quarterback here, I think it's, like, it's open for business, and they could get a good haul. Um, but I could also, again, like, like we all, like you just said, and laid out perfectly, they might just decide... You know, this is like the closest prospect to Julio Jones that we've seen, you know, in terms of like the level of prospect that he is, the type of field tilting talent that he is, um, and then just stick there. They don't even have to trade up for it like they did for Julio. Um, now, I'm not saying he's Julio, but I, I do think he has the ability, the talent to be a matchup nightmare for them, especially in Arthur Smith's offense, which is has been, um, you know, too tight and heavy. It's, it focuses on... Uh, the tight end position, you know? And so I think he's a perfect fit for what they want to do there. And and I think just it makes too much sense. So that's kind of like where I'm leaning, but like barely. I think they could move back, certainly. You think about it. Let's say let's say he's Kelsey. Let's say he's a bigger Kelsey. Yeah. I think that's a safe bet if he doesn't get hurt. So yeah. you, right here, if you're drafting and you're like, I could basically have the last six years of Travis Kelsey's career with this pick. That's going to be as valuable as anything other than a franchise QB based, based on the way the league plays football. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The way we Absolutely. play football these days is that is one of the, that is almost more valuable than a receiver. I would say. I, I, there's definitely that argument. It's like it, it presents such an, a difficult conundrum for defenses because when you have a guy like Pitts, who some, some teams are looking at this guy like he's basically a receiver. You can go line him up at X on the outside in isolation looks or... You can bring him in and, and in line. He's still going to be able to run routes from inline spots. And, and Travis Kelsey runs some some routes from the inline position. And then you get him matched up against a linebacker or a safety, and it's just toast. And so, I don't know. I think he he definitely, I think you could make that argument that he's more valuable as a tight end because he has that mis, mismatch ability um, to go and line up in multiple, multiple different spots on the field. He's not, like, worthless as a blocker. He can block. I don't think he's, like, a good Gronk style blocker, but he gives good effort. It's got the size, got the wingspan, all that stuff. And so, um, man, I, the more and more I think about it, he is just like he's going to be a guy that a lot of teams really, really want early in this draft. And and like the tight end position and the history of behind it, all kind of aside, he's the most talented guy at this spot, non quarterback. It'd be funny if the Patriots traded up to four and then they took Pitts and they were like, watch this. <laughs> Three tight yeah. ends and a D-minus <laughs> quarterback. Let's roll. Can they just give like 60 million guaranteed or something to tight ends? I'd love that. I actually, That's why the 49ers agent of chaos move would just be trading up and taking pits, not a quarterback. That would be the oh most my crazy God. move there. Tear him up with um, Kittle and just go, go ham on the league. I think that would be fun. Pitts just, you can even see the jersey. Like, to Pitts down the middle! Like, you, just, it just feels yeah. like he's going to be good. So... Atlanta's our first swing team. Everybody thinks first it was Cincinnati was going to take a tackle. And now it seems like it's going to be the best receiver, which 
people think is Chase. There's a little bit of an argument, but I think Chase is probably the safe consensus number one pick. I like Turn that pick for Burrow. the Bengals. Yeah. Yeah. I I like it. I because I don't feel like uh Sewell, who you have going seventh to Detroit, it's not like Sewell is a generational franchise tackle, right? He's the best tackle in this draft, but Chase yeah. has a chance to be a potentially generational receiver. And if you put him with Burrow and you could figure out the offensive line later, the counter to that would be you had no offensive line last year and you got your quarterback basically killed. He's out for the year. Maybe you <laughs> right. should draft a tackle. I can honestly see both sides of this argument and I waffle on it because, you know, giving a guy like Burrow more time is only going to be good for their offense. However, I think Chase is, is on a tier of his own in terms of this, this receiver class. And there are several good offensive tackles I think that you could get in the second round and you know what I mean and also tackle slash guards whether they decide to start him out at tackle or guard whoever they take um, I still think that they can improve their offensive line in the second round um, or the third round there's this is a very deep offensive line class and I don't know if I mean I think Sewell is definitely a very good prospect but I don't know if he is um, like you said that generational type prospect where you know he's a he's a surefire Hall of Fame type player. I, not that I'm saying Chase is that, but Chase is definitely a game changer. And I think that, especially considering he'd be going back to his college quarterback where they can just hit the ground running and they have immediately a really, really good receiving core there. Uh, and we see, we've seen kind of like that difference that made with Stefan Diggs going to Buffalo. Um, and Buffalo basically rebuilt their offensive line through free agency, at least uh, a big part of it. And so maybe that's like the route that they take. And with with Chase, Higgins and Tyler Boyd and Joe Mixon. That's a very, very good skill position group. And, and you you can all I, I just can picture them doing a lot of really good things with that that skill position group and, and getting Burrow back on track. I'm with you. I feel like you can address the line second, <laughs> third round, but you're not gonna have many chances to take a receiver like Chase. And then everybody has Miami taking a receiver at six. Are we positive? Are we positive? I'm going to say it again. Are we positive that they're not going to take a QB at six? Are we positive? No. no. I don't know why they would have traded out of three if they had that in mind. But at the same time, I'm not, I'm completely not eliminating them from like the running for a quarterback, if that makes any sense. I think, and and I think the, the general consensus is they traded back up to six uh, because first they traded back to 12 and then they traded back up to six like in the same day. And I think what that told me initially is they want one of these top-tier pass catchers, whether it be Pitts, Chase, Devontae Smith, or Jalen Waddle. Those are like the consensus four guys. Um, and for whatever reason, I, f- I feel like there's a lot of buzz about Waddle over Devontae Smith. So this was one of my curveballs. The Dolphins taking Jalen Waddle here over Devontae Smith, which mm. I don't know if that's going to happen, but it, it feels like that's what the wins are, are pointing to. Right? They're, they're saying right now that for whatever reason, the Dolphins really like Waddle. And I think it would be because they see him, and we just got done talking about Kelsey, I think a lot of teams might see Waddle as this Tyreek Hill-type player where the speed is just impossible to match up with. And he's that type of speed. Um, and it's also like, if you look at kind of like what the what the Dolphins have on their offense right now, like Devontae Parker, uh, Preston Williams, uh, Mike Kosicki, these guys are not speed demons. Ty- like field tilting type speed guys. And I think adding Waddle into that 
you know, could be very exciting for what they could do in that offense. Obviously, both Waddle and Devontae Smith have experience with Tua. So again, it's the same situation we were just talking about with Burrow. You have this built-in chemistry that can give these guys the ability to hit the ground running from day one. And so I, th- I think that's why I'm leaning there, but I, I'm with you. I don't think they're absolutely for sure out of the quarterback running. The more I looked at the trade back up from 12 to 6, the more confusing it is to me. Because <laughs> yeah. you probably have five quarterbacks in the top 12. You have Pitts in the top 12. And you have the three receivers in the top 12. But not everybody needs a receiver and or I guess everybody would need Pitts. But I think <laughs> right. if you look at the top 12, it's really hard for me to believe that either Smith or Waddle wouldn't have been there at 12. Right. So why did they trade back up? Did they trade up because they want pits or did they trade up because trade back up? What if they just love the deal from San Francisco yeah. and they were like, look, they're overpaying for this three pick. This is great. We'll go to 12. Mm-hmm. Now we'll move back up to six. We feel like we're going to get a guy that we probably would have been happy with at three. Anyway, we just got all this extra assets. Maybe they like fields. Maybe they like the other quarterback. Maybe, maybe they love Pitts. Maybe they wanted to take Pitts three. Yeah. That's why I, I did, I'm not yeah. I'm not convinced with anything I'm reading about. Oh no, they they're taking a receiver. Like, how do we know? Why would the Dolphins tell us? Is it in their interest to tell us? It's not. I think this going moving back up to six, I don't know if this is a reason enough for them to do this. So this is just speculation. But like being at six gives them so many more options. Being at six gives them the option to trade back if they want again, because they can hold that that pick hostage again. And, and, you know, we we talked about this on the NFL show, like they've done such a good job of leveraging their picks and turning that into more picks. I mean, they turned uh, Laramie Tunsil into like four first rounders or whatever it was. And so at six, you just have so much more flexibility to do what you want. And um whether that be take a quarterback here, hold that pick hostage, maybe Pitts falls to this spot, and that's ultimately their goal. Um, but I think that to me would be like maybe reason enough for them to move back up there just because it gives them the, the ability to do so many different things that, that puts them in the catbird seat if certain things fall like the way they think it's going to fall. I hate giving that egomaniac Kevin Clark any credit at all. But <laughs> when we did the Ringer NFL show last week, he made that point about the Tunsil pick becoming this crazy, this happens in sports sometimes, right? Like in, in the NBA, this agent named Bill Duffy forgot to mail in the contract in time for this random point guard that he'd had, whose name was, God, I can't even remember. His name was like Anthony Carter or something like that. And the guy ended up becoming a free agent because they didn't mail the contract in in time, which allowed the heat to sign Lamar Odom, right? They were able to steal mm-hmm. Lamar Odom from the Clippers with this extra cap space they magically got. And then a year later, they were able to trade for Shaq with Lamar Odom and Karan <laughs> Butler. And then this leads to the all of these sliding doors with the Shaq trade. They end up winning the title. They trade. Then Phoenix trades for Shaq. And there's like seven things that happen based on this one thing. Butterfly and with Tunsil, Yeah. And with Tunsil, as, as Clark pointed out, the weird gas mask tweet. Oh completely gosh. changes the course of NFL history. It leads to yeah. seven things. So I thought that was a really good point, and uh, I'm jealous of it. Because he was going to be, I'm just going off memory, but he was going to be like a much higher pick, like third or fourth. I can't even remember what it was. And then he fell to 
I, I can't even remember off the top of my head, like 11 or 12 or something like that. 13. It was totally, yeah, it changed the whole complexion of the draft. Like, that is just, yeah, that's crazy to think so about. So you're saying there's a chance the Dolphins could do the double trade back. Because if the yeah. Pats, if they want to move back up, um, actually, let's take a break and then we're going to talk about the uh, what the Pats can do here. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right? First half of the first game. I don't know. West Coast time, that's usually about Five o'clock, five thirty, perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at com slash courtside LDA twenty one and up. All right, coming back. We're talking about the Dolphins, the double trade back. So basically, <laughs> if the Dolphins don't really have a plan, they just like the draft. They got overwhelmed by this offer from San Francisco. Cool. Moved to twelve. Then they were like, Hey, if we move back up to six, we can still get the guy we liked at three. Let's go there. It's not going to cost us a lot. They go there. Now you have the Patriots at 15 who are terrified about people jumping in front of them at seven with Detroit or eight with uh, the Panthers if they really like Justin Fields, which I think they do, just yeah. for the record. Um, <laughs> but but then it's a question of, well, we move up to eight with this Panthers pick, which is now available because they had got Sam Darnold. But then what happens if somebody trades ahead of you to the seven at Detroit I don't know what Detroit's plan is. Like you, you think they're tanking. They're doing this weird Jared Goff thing. They right, basically right. they've thrown away 2021. You might have to move up to six, but I would say the safe bet if you're the Patriots is to move up to seven with mm-hmm. Detroit. So you're moving up eight spots. I think it absolutely costs another first and maybe even a third. Um, that would be you had them moving up to eight with the Panthers. I think they have to move up to seven. Yeah. Yeah. The more I think about it, and I agree with you, I think that might be the the ideal spot to move. Unless unless you think that the Dolphins are going to trade back, but I don't see the Dolphins trading with the Patriots in this scenario. So no way. Um, so seven is definitely like the number to circle. The reason I had Washington was logically speaking, Scott Federer is the GM there. He he spent uh, sorry with Carolina, I should say trading up with Washington, Washington traded up with Carolina. And the reason I say that is because Panthers GM, Scott Fitterer, he was uh, with the Seahawks for many years, like the last like couple decades, basically. And the Seahawks MO has always been to trade back. And and John Schneider's MO is to accumulate as many picks, especially early on when they were, when they were trying to build their roster and like basically rebuild that thing. They just look like a team that to me will be looking to trade back unless someone they absolutely love falls to that spot. So that was basically why I was thinking that. But I'll, I also think that Detroit is another situation where they're probably, they're in this like a multi-year rebuild. Um, you know, they've got like six-year deals in that front office. Like they're not going to be rushing into anything. Um, and they're another team that could probably get a pretty good haul based on like based on the fact that this year is sort of unique with the quarterback uh, position. It, in years past, the number seven pick probably wouldn't have fetched quite as much as it will now because you're going to still have one of these top tier quarterbacks there. So, yeah, I'm with you. Maybe that maybe they are like looking if they can get an extra first here and, and move back uh, with the Patriots or Washington or whoever. 
I think that could be a good move for for them because they're still going to get a good player in the first round, but they'll pick up, you know, much needed ammo to rebuild that roster. Yeah, so you have Denver picking nine, who you think Trey Lance goes to them at number nine, which that's that would be a miracle if they were able to get Fields That'd or great. Lance without yeah. trading up, right? And they, yeah. I, I couldn't totally understand. So Drew Locke was almost traded and then they backed out of the trade. Like, what was that story? Was he ever officially almost traded or was that all conjecture? I really don't know. I'm not sure. I think it was... Um one of those situations, maybe maybe they're open to it. I don't think, like, bottom line is, I don't think that they're satisfied at the quarterback position. Um, Why would they be? A, yeah, I mean, they <laughs> they shouldn't be, really. They're, they're a team that is, uh, they have a very strong roster, I think. And getting a good quarterback in there, you know, to, to pair him with that really, like, one of the better developing skill position groups in the NFL. You got Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, Noah Fant, uh, you know, even their backup, Albert O, his, he was really promising what he showed in his rookie season. So they've got a lot of really interesting weapons, KJ Hamler. Um, so I think, you know, their team with that defense, with that, you know, the coaching staff very clearly intent on turning that defense into a top tier defense. Um, they are like a quarterback away. And, and whether it's Trey Lance or Justin Fields, to me, they're one of the teams I think that benefits really from the, the flurry of moves over the last few weeks because they're potentially going to have, you know, unless you see massive trade-ups, they're potentially going to have their choice between Lance and Fields if things fall right for them, which is just crazy to think about. So I think Denver's in a really good position, but they're going to have to be careful because I do think someone's going to try and trade up either seven or eight at this point. Well, the move for them, it's so obvious. Like, they should just flip picks with Detroit. Yep. And give Absolutely. them a second round or something like that. And then they guarantee themselves the two quarterbacks. What, what they don't want to happen is cool. We're at nine. We're going to get one of these dudes. And then seven and eight, they're two trade people. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, two guys go off or Miami goes rogue and takes a quarterback. You know, mm -hmm. I don't feel like they can stand Pat. So I was thinking actually your scenario of you have Washington go to the Panther spot, but that could also be where the Pats go. But yep, if yep. Denver wants Lance, you just flip picks with, with Detroit. You know the Panthers are probably trading their pick. You know the Panthers love the narrative of, we got Sam Darnold, we gave up a second and a fourth basically for him, but then we traded backwards yep. and we picked up a first. And if you look at the exactly. totality of it, we got two firsts and Sam Darnold for this, this, and this. Exactly. You can just see where that's heading. Yep. And then if you're Detroit, you move back to nine, and if you're going to take that tackle, you get him anyway. Yep. And there you go. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I that is exactly like the scenario I, I'm, I'm kind of picturing with this happening. Because you, if if Sewell, if you get Sewell at nine after doing all that, that's like a coup right there. You, you've really worked it well. Um, so you know, and there's there's a lot of other really like high end players still going to be hitting at nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Um, you know, on this mock, I've got Patrick Sertain, who is one of the top corners in this class, or Sean Slater who I think a lot of people have him rated above Sewell. I've got him just below Sewell, but he's a very, very good prospect. And then Devontae Smith going to the Eagles at 12, who, you know, I don't know if, you know, Detroit's in the market for a receiver right now. Like, I don't know if that puts him over the top, but um, there's some there's some still blue chip players in that area. It seems like 12 is the drop-off. Yeah. I mean, I like, so. like a slight drop-off. Then it becomes, there's more arguments about who comes after 12. Yeah. I would say so. So the Pats, they need to navigate 
four things here. What does Atlanta do at four? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are the my, is Miami going to go rogue or are they going to take a receiver? Because you're <laughs> hoping they take a receiver, but deep down you're a little worried that they're going to do something weird. The Lions, it would be stupid for them to say at seven. Ideally, they just swip, swap spots with Denver, pick up something. Yeah. And then who gets that Panthers pick, which we both think is for sale now because of this Darnold trade? Yeah. Yeah. So I think so really... What does it take, the, does it take the to move hinge. to eight then? So what, what, does what it would take it take to move to eight? It would 15, another first, and like a third? So I think it's going to take... Well, again, like I said before, it's it's a unique situation because you can't really rely on history. So just one example. The Cardinals move up from 15 to 12 in 2018 for Josh Rosen. Josh Rosen was on a different level in terms of like the hype and everything. Um, but they only had to give up third and fifth. And that at the time was incredibly cheap to move up five spots. Um, the Bills... Mm move from 12 to 7 to get Josh Allen, they gave up two seconds. Um, the Chiefs, this one's a bigger jump. These are just some the previous quarterback trades. The Chiefs moved from 27 to 10 in 2017, and they gave up a third plus a future first. So I think it's somewhere in that range. I'm guessing this year, it would probably be something like, you know, either two seconds or a second and a first, like a future first, something in that range. Um, because the teams that are trading out of there, either the, the Detroit Lions or or Carolina, they're going to know that you know they've got a very like this is a valuable pick, and this is not we're not necessarily going to go straight off of the Jimmy Johnson trade chart in in this scenario. I think it's going to be a little bit. You're going to have to pay a premium to make that move. The Pats getting Fields, I would give up a first for that. Oh well, first of all. <laughs> People really like Fields. And part yeah. of the thing I've already seen from Patriot haters of my life, like Mina Kimes, for just to, just to, not to name just anybody, but just for an example, yep. people would be really upset if the Pats got Fields because I think everybody's <laughs> rooting for him. There's this chip on the shoulder potential yep. with him, like being basically the fourth or fifth QB. Um, what's wrong with this guy? I'm a believer. Um, yeah. And then him going to Belichick and then just us getting 20 years of fields after 20 years of Brady, I think would drive people crazy. I would love it. I, I'm you're gonna, injected in my veins. You're going to fucking force people to be fans of the Patriots. This is uh, this is absurd. And I'm going to be one of them. And I know Mina's probably in the same boat. Like it, it, it is one of those situations where I think everyone's like, some of these narratives, the fact he's falling, like it's all BS. Now he's going to have this big chip on his shoulder. Justin Fields is. And we're all going to be rooting for him to do really well. You know, we all watched him in that Clemson game, like how tough he is, uh, the way he plays. I don't know. Yeah, this is setting up to be a disaster for, for he's me like, personally. He's a more athletic Roethlisberger. Like, he's so big. And he's going to be, wait, what, five years from now, he'll be 20 pounds heavier? So he'll be playing right, like that, Yeah, like as he matures. He's going to be yeah. like Cam. He's going to be like Cam, honestly, in his prime with more accuracy and, a, and a, like a more accurate arm, more, more powerful arm. And a little I faster mean, that's how I too, right? Yeah, he ran like a 4-4. Four, four. I, I mean, I guess if he gains 20 pounds, probably lose a little bit of that. But, you know, he's not in the same category, I would say, as, as someone like, he's not like a Lamar Jackson style guy where he's going to juke people, you know, out of their socks or whatever. But he is, he reminded me of Cam watching him, the way people just slip off of him in the pocket or Ben. I think Ben is a great example too, where he just stands in the pocket and guys try to, try to sack him and he just like shrugs it off. He's so strong. 
and so powerful. Well, his, but then he also has that four four speed, four five speed, probably. His waist down body is like borderline freakish. Like he's got this huge butt <laughs> yeah. and these big legs, and these dudes <laughs> are like they're just bouncing off him like he's yeah, a wall. What's that going to look like when he's twenty seven? Yeah, it's just made of granite. It, 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 he is one of those guys. He's just I think he's a special athlete. Um, and honestly, I think he has very special accuracy too, which is something that you always look for at the quarterback position. So, uh, this is why I'm so excited about him. This is why I've always been adamant that he's my number two guy in this class, just behind Lawrence. Um, it's been a bit strange because, you know, watching kind of like the narratives change or the narratives not change necessarily, but like shift as he sort of falls out of favor, according to, I guess, like the, the draft consensus. And now he's like third or fourth behind even Lance. I remember this time last year, we were talking about whether he's better than Lawrence. And so, um, yeah, it's going to be very, very fascinating. And I do think there's now a solid chance that the Patriots get him. I think I think they're going to have to deal with like Washington potentially trading up. I think they're, you know, Washington makes sense to me. The reason I put Washington here is number one, not to completely just cater to your fantasy that you're going to get Justin Fields. <laughs> but I think Washington makes a lot of sense. Number one, like we just talked about Cam, like, Ron Rivera experienced like they went 15 and one. He turned him into an MVP, obviously open to having a quarterback that can be part of the run game, all that stuff. They're another team that their franchise, like their roster, I should say, is relatively stacked. And defensively, it's a very good defense. Like now they have good weapons on offense. Drop a good quarterback in there and they could be very dangerous. Um, so I think, you know, they're another team to me that that is a threat to move up here and, and throw in maybe the Steelers. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Are, are the are the Saints sort of like a big wild card here? Because they seem to always like, you know, get involved in things like this. But mm. um, yeah, I think there's a few teams. Bears, maybe. The Bears are another team, like just kind of a wild card. You don't really no, know what they're doing. If you get if you get desperate, don't do that. If to they the get Bears desperate. fans. <laughs> Come on, don't do that. The Bears fans have suffered enough. They don't want to think they have a shot at Fields. It would be hilarious yeah. if the Falcons just took them at four. Because by the way, that's what they should do. They should take. Fields at four, they're in cap hell this year anyway. You know, I I think they could definitely overachieve mm -hmm. maybe 10 and six, 11 and five. But with some of the cap things they have going on, because I was looking at them for their Super Bowl odds, which are like 65 to one. But it does seem like this is a tough cap year for them to pull off basically the depth you would need to complete for a Super Bowl. So maybe right. the move is you draft Fields, you have Ryan for another year. And if Fields is amazing, you're in an Alex Smith Mahomes situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one thing that like hangs me up on the on the Falcons is, you know, they would have to eat a massive cap hit in 2022, not just this year, but in 2022 mm. also to move on from Matt Ryan. So, I mean, it's not like impossible. Yeah. We've seen teams teams do it like we've seen teams move on from quarterbacks that weren't the answer. Um, but the idea, like in theory, that they would wait two years. So, like, let the quarterback play in his third year. And this is a new coaching staff and a new GM. Do you think they want to make their first pick this highly valuable pick? Wait for two, like, see what happens in 2023? I don't know. That to me, just like, for me personally, that just seems weird. Like, I would not do that if I was in that position. You don't know if you're going to be here in 2023. Well, plus, so, Arthur, Arthur Smith's watching those Pitts game tapes like, oh, yeah, oh exactly. my God. Things I could do, yeah. And imagine Holy, him John next Smith, to Julio I and Calvin Ridley and like, I don't know. I think they could really build something like a really good offense that way. So, um, well, look, the know. field, the fields thing is stupid because the criticism is basically, Oh, I don't really like how he progresses off his first read. 
So now he's the fifth best quarterback in this draft. It's like, all right, well, he was in college. Maybe that's something he could get better at. Right, you know, right. It's not, you know, it's not going to change is the fact that he's got Ben Roethlisberger's body and Cam Newton's speed. Like, that's right. going to be a thing at the next level. I'm okay with maybe teaching him how to advance past the first read. I don't get the draft sometimes. <laughs> the overthinking yeah. is just crazy. Like we saw with Lamar a couple years ago. Where Lamar almost falls out of the first round because it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, and and they start nitpicking and it's just like, all right, does this guy have an amazing blue chip talent? Because ultimately that's why these quarterbacks succeed or fail, right? Why did Josh Rosen not make it? He didn't make it because just average. He, he didn't have average. an elite yeah. talent. Yeah. He just wasn't great at something. Why did Josh Allen make it? Well, he's a fucking unbelievable athlete. And ultimately, yeah. it was like, can he be accurate enough? Well, he learned how to be accurate enough, but the athleticism was there the whole time. And with Fields, it's just like, that dude's a fucking unbelievable athlete. I don't understand mm-hmm. how you could talk yourself out of him as a top five pick. So anyway, I yeah. hope the Patriots get him. <laughs> and I'm afraid that's what's going to happen now. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to be completely insufferable to yeah. everyone in my life about this Fields thing. <laughs> I will buy the jersey. I'm going to change my background oh my to God. a picture of him. I, I'm just going to lose my mind. Last thing before we go, let's make this quick. It seems like the Niners have just basically decided on Mac Jones. There's a lot of Shanahan mm-hmm. DNA here. They like certain types of quarterbacks. I, I get it. I get the argument. But could this be like a legendarily weird move down the road? It, I think it could end up being one of those situations where you ask, what if? I do still have confidence that if Mac, if the 49ers pick Mac Jones and everything is looking like Adam Schefter said today that he would be shocked if it wasn't Mac Jones. And like, you know, when Shefty says that, you got to listen. So I think when I look at this, I think that Mac Jones is going to be a good quarterback in the NFL because he's going to get into a good system with a good coach and good support system around him, good offensive line, like all the things line up. But I think what I'll be asking probably in a few years is what could it look like with Justin Fields or Trey Lance instead. So I don't know if it's going to be legendarily bad, but it's going to be one of those scenarios where you ask what if forever. Wow. What a draft. I think it's going to be fun. I think this is the most fun NFL draft. We've had some good ones, right? We had the one with the Rosen draft was really fun. Um, It's not like every every year there's some sort of angle, but this one where you have, I'm just thinking like the football cards angle because, you know, my son likes to, he'd like (laughs) to buy the football cards, open the Panini Prisms. There are so many potential incredible cards in this draft where you have the five QBs, the three receivers, and then Pitts, who might go down as like one of the five best offensive tight ends we've ever had. Yeah, And you're just like, wow, just from that standpoint alone, I can't wait for this draft. Great storylines, all kinds of stuff. When's your next mock draft coming? So I, I, we're we're still deciding that. I think it's either going to be, it's probably going to be next week. Okay. All right, Danny so Kelly, we, you can hear yeah. him on the Ringer NFL show. He's breaking all this stuff down. Read him on the ringer.com. And uh, and he's, if you want to torture him on Twitter, just send fake Russell Wilson trades at him. It sets him off. He loses <laughs> his mind. <laughs> Good to Absolutely. see you. You too. All right, my good buddy Joe House is here. You can hear him on the Fairway Rolling podcast. And we have known each other since 1988. This is the longest stretch we have never seen each other in person um, since 1988. But there's light at the end of the tunnel. We, we will be hanging out together at some point. For now, we can hang out on the Zoom and talk about the Masters. You talked uh, on Fairway Rolling. You did a big preview pod 
that is going up. It'll be up by the time people listen to this. I wanted to grab you on to talk about some bets. We should mention, this is a house-like intro. This is like a three-minute intro for me. Uh, we should mention the Fairway Rolling Dough contest on FanDuel. You can sign, join up. You can compete against me and House and Nathan and Kevin Clark, all these people. If you just want to put in six golfers, your best possible lineup, I did mine, you did yours. All right, here we go, House. Give me your best bet to win the 2021 Masters, even though we just had the Masters like six, seven months ago and the Masters is back, but we love it. Give me your best bet right now. Yeah, we the, the last Masters was, was four and a half months ago. It was November, but because of, of the weird time-space continuum that we are in, it felt like it was eight months ago. I love that you want me to start right off the top. Like this is, this very much fits how long it's been since we've seen each other. Like it's, it's going to be a very, like, we're going to hug and it'll be over. You know what I mean? It'll be like when we were 14 years old again. Um, you want the no, very we're, we're best gonna, pick right <laughs> off the top. We're going to hug and then you're going to be like, let's go, so, let's get something to eat. Yeah, and you're right eat. about that. That's what, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, okay, give me your best pick, though. Well, I, I love Justin Thomas. Uh, I have, you know, one and one A, and I hate going chalk. Uh, right now, I'm looking at FanDuel. The odds are... Bul bul bulky Bryson, beefy Bryson at plus 950, DJ at plus 950, and then Justin Thomas at plus 1100 along with Jordan Spieth. So it's a, it's a chalky pick, but Justin Thomas um, has been incandescent at the Masters the last handful of years. Every year that he's competed in the Masters, he's made the cut uh, and he's finished better each year. He's improved his place. So he last in November, he finished Fourth, he just won the players, but more importantly for Justin Thomas is his second shot, shot making. He's outstanding uh, from approach. He is first against all competitors in the Masters. Over the past three years in strokes gained approach over the last three years, he's first in greens and regulation over the last three years, and he's also an outstanding putter at the moment. First in putts per greens and regulation and first in putting birdies or better. And Look at the, this. You're like Kurt Goldsberry throwing well, stats the, at me. This is unbelievable. <laughs> the description of Augusta for this April moment is very different from the, the description of the conditions back in November because, you know, different, different season altogether. We're back in the traditional moment for this. And the reports from the grounds are that the course is playing as firm and as fast as it ever has. It's also true that the Green Jacket homies do not want a repeat of 20 under. I mean, it's not that anybody's embarrassed by Dustin Johnson going out and shooting 20 under, but they want this thing to be tight. They like it between nine under and 11 under. So the greens are going to be crazy firm. And so you need the guy that's going to hit the ball into the green, into the right spot, and then be able to roll the rock. That's JT for me this week. Now, I also love John Rahm. And you and so I, have had, we've had a lot of time together with John Rahm. John Rahm and I have been on a lot of dates on FanDuel. <laughs> yes. We've, we've, I bought him dinner. I bought him drinks. I've tried to bring him home and What's he just happened? won't come home with me. He, him he, and Tommy Fleetwood. Yeah. Spent so much, so much time on those two guys, really, really courting them, just trying to get them to come through for me. And it's never happened. John Rahm is my pick. And here's okay. why. Let's hear it. Yeah. Um, I, I think he's due. I think it would make sense for him at some point over the next three years 
to win this tournament specifically because I think he has a chance to be one of the best golfers of his generation. So you need one of these to push it over the top. I love that he had the kid last week. Yes. I love the storyline of this. And I just pictured Nance with a smoking jacket on covered in body oil on Sunday as Rom's up by two strokes doing a, you know, Rom knocks in the winning putt and he does the daddy's home or whatever, whatever corny Nance line. <laughs> one for the father. I, I just, I, I just feeling John Rom. I think the Thomas thing, once you and Harry picked him, I was out. Harry yeah. from against all odds. The fact that both of you like him, I'm out. That's the kiss I- of death. I totally understand that. And and Rom has all kinds of great metrics that reflect him as as capable of winning this golf tournament. The challenge is, you know, it could go one of two ways, right? He's coming in on 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 a Wednesday as opposed to the more traditional arrive Monday and 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 play it on out because his little baby boy was just born over the weekend and so you know, coming in with whatever is in in his his uh, mind and in his emotional spirit, will he arrive drained or will he arrive buoyed? I don't no, know the answer to he's that. He's not from here. He's he's from a different culture. <laughs> okay, he's all right. He he's like he, now he's gonna go. He's gonna go do his thing and then come back and be a dad after that. Okay, in America, he, well, we, which what's happened in this country, we'd, you'd have a lot more pressure to do the right thing, handle the first couple of days. He's he's fine. Well, he's a stud. Seven top tens in his last nine starts. In his last three appearances at at Augusta, he's finished uh, inside the top ten. So, I mean, he's a stud horse. And if you want to jump on that stud horse's back, if you really think that he's going to come inside with you tonight, then then by all means, go go ride John Rahm. I lit all the candles in the room. I'm ready for you, John Rahm. It's time for us to make some FanDuel love. Spanish. Uh, The Spanish stallion. (laughs) I got a bottle of Rioja. Woo! Um, I'm going to do process by elimination on the top picks on FanDuel. Bryson, beefy Bryson, plus 950. You just said it. They're going to make the course harder. The minus 20 was embarrassing. It was humiliating. That's not the Masters in Augusta that we know and love. They're going to add some wrinkles to make it harder. That's bad for beefy Bryson. He's out. He can't DJ putt. Won- he also, he's terrible putting yeah. at Augusta. DJ won... I thought it was six months ago. You claim it was four and a half months ago. It could have been 15 months ago. I don't remember. I've lost track of time. DJ winning two masters in six months seems impossible to me. The back-to-back thing, I'm crossing him off. Jordan Spieth won last weekend. And and also, deep down, we know he's going to choke on Sunday. He's out. Wow. Justin Thomas. That's, you that's and Harry slander. Both. Justin Thomas is too, is too cheeky of a pick. Cross him off. <laughs> Rory, no way. And then now we go into, and Brooks, I don't think Brooks's body can hold up for 72 holes. I know he's going to play. I know I have a moment. I know he's going to suck me in. I know I'm going to be sending you Brooks triple we'll, exclamation We're going to live. We'll live bet him. We definitely live bet him. Um, Cantlay at, at 22 to one and Xander Shoffley at 25 to one. I think have to be mentioned. I use them in our fairway rolling dough. Our, yeah. like, those are two of the, my picks. They weren't two of the highest salary guys. They're kind of in that next tier. Those are guys I never pick for Fando. I always lean toward John Rahm, Fleetwood, Brooks, all my guys. I decided to go the other way this year because these guys are always in the hunt and I never have them. And Xander specifically, I could see him winning. And I think the 25 to one, just because 
he's always around, you know, he's always hanging around and people never take him seriously. You take him seriously. You're a huge fan. Well, he, I, you have to take him seriously when it comes to the masters. He has an, inc- in the majors, he has an incredible record across all four majors in this, in the masters in particular, he tied for second the last time the Masters was played in April. So that was April of 2019, tied for second. He tied for 17th when they just played it in, in uh, uh, November. He's playing, he's, he's in decent form. He's not in incredible form, but he just finished inside the top 20 at the match play event um, in, in Austin, Texas. Cantley also checks a ton of boxes. The guy has four starts at Augusta. He has a tied for ninth, a tied for 17th. And across his season so far, eight top 20s. He has a win this season, a second place, and a third place. So nothing wrong with either one of those guys. They both fit. You know, the thing about the Masters is because it's played at the exact same venue every year, you can um, come up with certain attributes of of the winners and identify some trends. So uh, over the last 10 years, it's it, you got to be aged under 40. Typically, you got to be ranked in the top 30 of the world. You have to have a top 25 under your belt at Augusta. Both those guys have it. You have to have made the cut the previous year, though. Both those guys have it. You have to have at least one top five this season. Uh, I, I, I know that um, Cantley's got it and, and Xander's got to be right on the edge. And you have to 10 out of 10 finish in the top 30 of uh, one of their last two events entering this. And I think both guys fit that as well. So, you know, all kinds of, of metrics and, and, and attributes that both those guys satisfy. And Cantley's one of those guys. He's been in the mix for a while. But if you ask like the casual golf fan, give me like your two favorite Cantley moments. I don't know if they'd be able to come up with them. The, the very he, best he Cantlay moment. moment was him in, in Hawaii talking about ordering Mai Tais from the tea box uh, <laughs> a year and a half ago. By the way, it's the three-year anniversary of when we were at the Masters with my dad and nephew Kyle, which was one of the great three-day trips. Amazing. I loved it. It was Not, so it, it capped off by who had the, who had the, uh, the tiger, the, the coming two feet from the, what, what was that, 16 when we were sitting yes, on 16? we were sitting on 16, yeah. Tiger stuck it. He yes. stuck it right next to the pin for us. Right. He, 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 did, he did stick it. The highlight of that trip really was the rental car. I know. Um, we, we're, not, we're still not allowed to tell that story because Kyle's still with his girlfriend. Well, it, that it story. Didn't, I, it, it didn't. We, all we did was hear a little bit of a text message. That's all. That's the whole story. <laughs> That's it. There's nothing I, more to say. At some point. At some point, we're telling the story. It won't be today. It is. It's <laughs> my dad. It's the greatest moment of his life, basically. <laughs> uh, plus, I think we both gained five pounds. That was a, yeah. Um, all the sandwiches were spectacular. I bought a bunch of Berkman stuff, half of which I've lost, including the hat, which I need what? to get. You lost get. your Berkman. Need- the hat you got a Berkman. No, you, know, you know. You know who lost people. my hat. Oh, Guess yeah, who lost course. my hat? Yeah, you, like it was me. Like I was going to lose the hat. You're the fuck face. I know who lost it. No, no, it wasn't my fuck face son either. It, it was, was my that? wife. I think oh my, my wife God. played tennis in it, and then it mysteriously disappeared. I can't believe I would never call your wife the an FF. By the way, just no, but your, please just call my just son, your son. He really is son. a little fuck face. Right. Yes. Um. All right. So, long shots. Fleetwood's forty-one to one. You know no. what? That's you know no. what, Tommy. Tommy, look away. You don't get to sit next to me at the at the FanDuel bar. I'm not 
I'm not buying you a drink this time, Tommy. Don't bat your eyelashes at me. How about, can I give you Cam Smith at 37 to one or Masayama at 46 to one? You like either of those? I don't like Hideki. I really, really, really like Cam Smith. Cam Smith just tied for second at this event in November. And since then has been on a bit of a heater. He was uh, in the lead uh, through two rounds down at at the um, WGC event in Florida at a golf course called the Concession. And he he has a bunch of top five finishes. If he had he ended up tied for fifty first at that event, um, which would have been a real feather in his cap if he'd finished another you know the top ten of that. Also, he rolls the rock beautifully. His short game is spectacular. That's a, definitely a guy if you can if you need to build a DFS lineup if you can afford to get him in. He's definitely worth the investment. Hideki's just been too inconsistent, and I just can't have a guy who can't putt on greens that, you know, are, are allegedly the fastest greens these guys will play on tour all season long. Fair. I'm going to give you a miss the cut bet. Great. Jordan Spieth plus 480. No chance. That's that's slander. It's uh, defamation. <laughs> I won't stand for it. I, I am here. What I'm rooting for, what I really want to see is Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas, the old pals and and the rivalry rekindled Sunday afternoon, three o'clock tea time. They're the last two to go off. That's what I want to see. Spieth and JT battling mano y mano coming down the stretch. How about Beefy Bryson at plus 460? Now you've got my attention. See, because he had such a weird experience the last time that he played at Augusta and he talked about having some kind of physical reaction, physical ailment where he alleged Mm. that it had to do with gut bacteria or something that he'd eaten, there's some kind of blockage, all kinds of nonsense. I think it was mental. He came off of winning that U.S. Open at Wingfoot. He had all of, you know, this this, uh, um, research gone into whether or not he was going to play a longer driver. At the very last minute, he decided not to play the longer driver. I think he psyched himself out. And I don't know, once you sort of get into weird headspace with Augusta, it's not easy to get yourself out. Ask Rory McIlroy about that. Especially if they made the course harder. I think that's the best point you made this whole pod. And it's a really important point for the audience. They made the, they. I know they're going to make the course harder and they're going to make it finite and you're just not going to be able to fuck up this weekend. You're just not, especially Saturday, Sunday. They're not going to allow it. They might allow you, allow you to get a little momentum Thursday, Friday, but Saturday, Sunday, they're going to mess with us. And the the beefy Bryson knocking, you know, the eight iron second shot off the green, rolling off. Like I just yes, thought stuff's that's so that right. plus four sixty. I thought yeah, was now uh, that's a little juicy. I, I'm gonna if we if you do that, I'll join you on that. The sad thing is we can't. Parlay, or maybe maybe we can find a place to parlay. Oh, make find the a cut place. with a, the couple of them. Yeah, what's we would do, do a couple. We could we could, you can always combo make the cut and miss the cut, right? If you know the odds, like and we have the odds all here on Fanduel, we'll have to come up with a little little parlay on that. Here's my favorite bet on Fanduel. All right, top former winner. Okay, top score for the former winners. Here are the odds. Yeah, DJ is plus one seventy five. Spieth plus 250. I'm not betting him. Reed plus 550. Yep. Then we go into this Garcia 9 to 1, Scott 10 to 1, Bubba 12 to 1, Mickelson 22 to 1, uh, Danny Willett. Remember him? 29 I, to I 1. I do. 
Zach Johnson, 29 to one. It just kind of keeps going, gets more and more unrealistic until we get to VJ singing a hundred to one. Um, DJ at plus 175 to be the best former winner golfer. Seems like a really smart way to bet on DJ if you just think he's going to have a really good tournament. Because basically, he just has to beat Spieth and Reed and Scott. And on the flip side, Reed, if you like Reed at plus 550, just in general, if you like Reed, if you think he's going to be top five finish or whatever, that seems like a nice way to play Reed and just be like, all right, he just basically needs to beat Spieth, Scott, and and and, and DJ. I'm not throwing in Sergio because I'm not a Sergio guy. What do you yeah. think of that, though? It's it's interesting. I don't know if if there's a ton of value. The one thing about Reed at plus five fifty that's interesting to me is he owns Jordan Spieth. So if they end up in a twosome together, Patrick mm. Reed, when they played head to head like the last six times, has has um beaten him all five or six times. The 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 concern would be you know, Reed over over DJ, but what you're sort of betting on there is that DJ, for whatever reason, um, is scuffling a little bit. DJ's had trouble, and let's be clear about this: it's not outsized trouble. He's been missing fairways. Um, it it started down at uh in your backyard at Riviera, um, and he he's been tinkering a little bit. Uh, the the T ball is not as crucially important in terms of accuracy at Augusta, but if if you thought that DJ was going to find himself in trouble and not able to land the ball in the three square feet where you're allowed to land the ball on these greens, then Reed would would be the bet at at, at plus five fifty, and then you know because you're already saying, well, I like Reed over Spieth, so Reed over uh, DJ. That's the kind of story you have to tell yourself to make that worthwhile. Reed top five is plus 600. So in a weird way, it's better odds to just bet on him to beat those three guys than it is to bet on him to actually finish in the top five. I think plus so. Plus 550 plus 600. I think uh, so. The Cam Smith is plus 700 to make the top five, which I thought was a little tasty. I, I also it, like that. I mean, you know, we we're wondering about muscle memory since it was not that long ago that he just had a great performance there and he really putted so beautifully. Uh, in November, Xander is plus four fifty. Cantlay is plus four ten. One thing you could do here, basically, I think we all go into the Masters, and there's four to six guys that we like, right? You just yeah. bet, you bet the four guys you like to finish in the top five. Try to hit two. I mean, and then hit, the odds hitting are with two, it, hitting two is as hard as a mother effer, though. Just but if look, you if you hit one, you make your money it. back, right? If you hit yeah. one, you've paid for all the other bets that didn't make it. If you win, if you hit two of five, now you're making some real money. You could also do it with the top ten, by the way. Yeah, but that's for, right. For some reason, the top ten leaves me a little flaccid. Uh, well, here's one other sort of thing to keep in mind: eight of the last ten times. The winner of the Masters has been somebody that opened the week at 16 to 1 or higher. So Chalk, for whatever reason, doesn't tend to win at the Masters. Now, DJ was number one in the world uh, and and had the high, you know, the best odds among the best odds coming into this uh, in November. And then Tiger was also right around 14 or 15 to 1. So those are the two aberrations out of this. But if you're looking, you know, for, for some names kind of further down the card, like, like a Xander, like a Cantlay, you can play a tiny, a smaller amount on them to win. So you get the real return. And to go along with that, 
play the top five and and you've covered in case you know they 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 finish fourth or something like that. I have an announcement. Go ahead. We're going next year. Oh, all right, twenty twenty two. We're going for the whole time too. I oh, want to wow. be there on Sunday. We're fucking going the whole time. Yeah, I will say I've I've never been for a Sunday. I've been to a number of Masters. I've been lucky. Um, not quite double digits, but a bunch. Uh, but I've never stayed all the way to Sunday. You know who's going to come with us? You got to bring Nate, right? Ne- Nephew Kyle wants to be invited. He's texting us. Well, he, he deserves to come. I think we have to negotiate. I think he has to let us tell the master story <laughs> to officially be invited. He might have to be engaged for that, though. Is that worth it? <laughs> well, <laughs> Kyle says done. <laughs> wow that didn't take any time <laughs> all right so next time you're on the pod we'll do it where it's the last section of the podcast we'll we'll tell the we'll tell the story kyle I says think it's your, worth it your dad needs to be on then i think my dad needs to be on we really need to do it we need to tell the whole story it's a great one uh i was thinking about the food too with, yeah with the sandwiches and stuff and i have some regrets i oh. honestly I, I think i acted like a wuss Cause I wasn't like eating a lot of bread at that time. And I want to come, I want to come back next, next April. Good. And I want to eat the sandwiches correctly. Yeah, I agree. You were being a, wuss. a puss. That's I, right. I was. You were. And you know, the thing that we experimented with and we did even did a podcast uh, about it. We had the former editor chief of Bon Appetit magazine, my pal Adam Rappaport on, and we were talking about different sandwich hacks, right? So like we were taking pimento cheese and putting it with the chicken because then it gave you a cheesy chicken sandwich, or you could do the egg salad and maybe you want to put that uh, you know, a little egg layer with, uh, I don't, I don't know, you could do that with the chicken also. And then they, there, there's some other, you know, the Turkey, you can gussy up with the cheese. Like there's a bunch of stuff that can happen. I have another announcement. Okay. FanDuel is paying for all of this. I haven't told them yet. I'm, I'm going to talk them into it. <laughs> We've been incredible partners for them, but yeah, they're going to go all out. They're going to get right. us. We're going to have a FanDuel house. We're going to have a FanDuel party. Oh my 2022. God. 2022. Tiger's going to be back. It's going to be amazing. All right. He's going to be walking I, again. He's going to be I doing his it. thing. It's going to be the greatest, greatest ever. There's no reason not to have big dreams. I love it. We'll, it's important we'll spread, at our stage of life. We'll spread my dad's ashes on one of the holes, even though he'll still be alive <laughs> at that point. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm still here. We'll spread the ashes of his mustache. Um, I can't wait. So, you know, by the way, House, you know, WrestleMania and the Masters are going head to head on Sunday. I I saw WrestleMania, but doesn't that come on late enough so that, you, that we get a winner in the green jacket and then you can go right over to WrestleMania? You are correct, sir. Oh, what that is an exactly, amazing Sunday. It's exactly how it's going to play out. Yeah, so I feel like something, I feel like it's a special, special day. I'm excited. I'm excited for you. What's your podcast schedule? You're doing one after round one? We're no, so we're just doing the recap Sunday night. As soon as the green jacket is on somebody's shoulders, we have a show that that goes up uh, Wednesday. Our preview show with the picks, the deep dives into trying yep. to generate a little return on investment. And then Nate and I were flirting with maybe. So I'm going to be in Mexico. You know, I'm going down to Mexico at the end of this. Oh, week. good. I'm going to yeah, be in yeah. Mexico. Right. So, but we might do like a Twitter space or something on Saturday. We could promote it properly if we decide to do it. But we're definitely going to do a podcast Sunday evening. As soon as the green jacket is on somebody's shoulders, we're, we're jumping on. Great. And yeah. then and then all of us are going a year from now, courtesy of FanDuel. I can't wait to tell them. It's thank you, great. FanDuel. Thanks, FanDuel. Thank, thank you for this. <laughs> 
FanDuel 2022, the FanDuel house, the party's going to be great. I can't wait. Last time we went, remember we met Josh Allen at the CAA party. We, that was amazing. And, and it was a great interaction. And I was all in for Josh Allen after that. And I was like, this guy, this guy has it. I really like my interaction with him. He seems like a quarterback I would want to play football for. That was great in information and intelligence. If we'd only used it three years later, you know, when Buffalo went on that little run, although I didn't, I think I bet on, oh, I bet against Buffalo. No, we rode, we rode them. You times. did. I, I, I picked the stupid ass Ravens. Why did I do that? We, I still have my regrets. Yeah. Well, you'll be able to bet on Justin Fields on the Patriots next year. So that'll be exciting too. It'll be exciting. great. With the Masters, Justin Fields, I'll have my Justin Fields jersey on. It'll be incredible. It's going to be hilarious. Ha I can't wait. House, um, enjoy the Masters. Check you as well. Rowan, and, uh, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, buddy. All right. David Allen Greer is here. I can't remember if this is the first time we've done a podcast. I know, I know we've had many conversations, but on ESPN, we might've done one. And no. it's definitely the first one for the ringer. You know, I just feel so disrespected. Can I call you William? Here's what would happen. I would see you at Kimmel's Super yeah. Bowl Sunday. And it would go, why haven't you been on my show? Oh, you should do my show. Let's do a show. Here's my number. Here's my number. Silence. You know what happened? Corolla got super territorial. But now, now I feel like you're a free agent on the podcast market. And I'm single, baby. I'm out there. I'm single. Podcast <laughs> mingling. Uh, you watch the cut. Let's talk sports first. And then we got to talk. We have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. But there's. A whole bunch of sports stuff going on, including Gonzaga last night. Uh, their undefeated season went up in smoke because Baylor was way more athletic, way faster, and completely destroyed them. I felt like I swung the game when I bet on Gonzaga before the game on the money line. I, I don't, I didn't read that in the post game reports, but this game felt like it was over in three minutes. It really was. They looked confused. That dude, the white dude with the handlebar mustache, you know, the Wild West, all of a sudden he was like your older brother's goofy friend. It was like, dude, what happened, man? It looked like aunts versus nephews. That's what I tweeted. It was just, oh my God. They just—they looked bigger. They looked older. They looked like they recruited them from like a uh, grown man league in a parking lot and said, we'll pay you $50 a piece to whoop ass. They just faster, stronger, more aggressive. Uh, Gonzaga looked befuddled the whole game. And I switched off midway through the fourth quarter and started watching the Hemingway Ken Burns uh, documentary. What you know? I heard that was lit. It, <laughs> it was and was. Here's what here's what's soothing. As a black man watching any Ken Burns documentary, whenever they touch on race, because you know you can hear the following. Well, he was a man of his time. I mean, we couldn't really expect, given. His generation, you know, of course, everybody knows Hemingway is problematic, but I didn't, uh, it was still amazing and interesting. Uh, and, and also how influential he was and still is as a writer. You know, I've, you know I, I was going to talk about this later, but let's talk about it now because you're talking about influence. You know, yeah. it's been the 30 plus years since In Living Color. 
the the heyday of Eddie Murphy, which kind of came back when they did Coming to America too. There was a little recycling of that. You had Arsenio's show on Fox. Yeah. You had Spike. He's starting to take off. You have John Singleton, Boys in the Hood, which was 30 years ago. Uh, this year, you have this this kind of, I don't even want to call it a renaissance. It was a naissance. Yeah. So, <laughs> Um, and now we've seen it basically happening again the last four or five years for different reasons and all these Hollywood things. Where do you, as you're watching from afar, how do you feel about your era where this was happening, where all this influential stuff and TV, movies, music, all that stuff's happening versus the last couple of years here? I feel like any old guy. Our music was better. Our fashion <laughs> were better. We were braver. We were taller. We were stronger. We were smarter than kids today. I, I feel all that. But also, uh, in temperament and uh, emotion, I'm more like, I liken it to jazz players. You know, like when Dixieland came, it went, Big Band came, it went, and Bebop from Swing. There are a lot of dudes who never cross-pollinated. They just were like, that's Chinese music. Uh, we're not playing that. Okay. Then there were really cool dudes. I think it was Benny Carter. So he may be one of the guys, a tenor player who actually was really cool with the younger musicians. His ears were more opened. And that's kind of like where I'm at. I mean, the young, you know, I, it, this music uh, and this culture is for 15 to 25. I'm 64. It's not supposed to be for me. Right. You know what I mean? It's not supposed to be for me. And um, also, I think the maturation of a generation, as soon as it got to about 20 years, that's when nostalgia kicks in. Because there's a whole new generation that finds your old clothes, your old records, just like we did in the 70s. Everybody was wearing 40 stuff. I used to love to go to, you know, vintage stores, get vintage shirts. Now I'm like, someone else wore this? No, I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait till it's restocked. You know, that kind of stuff. So that's what we're doing. My daughter's 13. She's, everything about me is vintage. <laughs> Have you let your daughter watch Boomerang yet? Uh, I haven't let her. You know, one of the great things about kids is, uh, especially when they're turning teenagers, you're of no interest to them. They cannot imagine anyone, anything, any culture, any time is more interesting than theirs. I remember being in the car once with my nephew. He was about 12 at the time. And he goes very smugly, uh, Uncle Dave, have you ever heard of um, Sly and the Family Stone? And I said, <laughs> actually, that was my first concert I went to. I think I was... 13, and we went to the Olympia, the, the Olympia uh, Arena in Detroit. And yeah, I know all about him. And he says, oh, okay. I said, are you listening to him? He said, yeah, but we listened to it different than you guys did. And I go, oh, that says it in a nutshell. We hear the same music? No. We're listening differently than you did. So I was just like, okay. All right. Yeah. 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 So that's what it is. I don't have to worry. She it's there. All she has to do is search it. And you got to steer toward the BT version where that has like some <laughs> edits. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have, I, you know, this is all old news, but let me put it like this. I, you know, when I was in seventh grade, I remember this kid found these um, porno 
still. Mm. He found in a parking lot on the way home. They're torn out of a, clearly out of a, a porno magazine. We traded them like they were Bitcoin. We trimmed and cut them <laughs> and we put, you know, you used to be able to go to the corner store and you would get like this little like uh, plastic stuff that you could put your license or not your license because that was plastic, but I mean like your birth certificate, stuff like laminated. We laminated these pictures, but we did it home style with just um, scotch tape and passed them and traded them. That We didn't have internet, man. We had moving pictures. No, nah, man, it's all out there. So uh, I, I try to regulate like any parent does in my own house, but you know, they got friends and you, I, know, I don't know if you have kids, but you know, all every kid has the buck wild friend. Right. You know, the one whose parents go, fuck it, you can stay up till midnight. You know, so. My I'm fear sure. is my my 13 year old son might be that friend for his friends, but my 15 year old daughter, <laughs> same, same thing with my daughter, where it's just like you hit this age where you were the coolest person to them, and then something flips at like age 11, age 12, and all of a sudden you're the least cool person to them. It's a 180. Well, I think about it. I mean, there was this girl, I can't say her name because I don't know, but I mean, she was the coolest, coolest, craziest white girl in my class when I was like in sixth grade. What happened to her? She was bipolar. We didn't know it. I didn't know it back then. You know, back then it was like, she does anything. She will dance on a table. She's crazy. She ate her eraser. I love this chick. Then I go, mm, she's probably, you know, has yeah. setbacks. So. Yeah. You know, we did, uh, we have this podcast called The Rewatchables that we do on The Ringer that where we, we basically, we watch old movies. We have all these categories. We did Boomerang probably, I don't know, 10 months ago. It's such a fascinating time. It's it's fascinating how the movie's aged. It's really a rom-com, but I don't think people think of it as a rom-com, but it's 100% a rom-com. Yeah. It's Eddie at like the peak of his powers. And then you're tapping into you and Martin at really good times of your career, I think. And then there's all these actresses in it, you know, and then a young Halle Berry. It's an amazing movie and it's aged, I think, really well. I mean, there's... Obviously, some early '90s stuff that wouldn't fly now, but um, for the most part, I, I was just so impressed by how well it had aged. Well, first of all, everybody was in it. Generation, everybody. And so I heard about Eddie Murphy's new movie. We're doing in Living Color at that time. I would see the Hudlin brothers just around, and it was always it was like, dude, when are you guys gonna work with me? You know, and they you know put me in House Party Eight or something, dude. So they said, look, we got something coming down the pipe. So I went to read for Boomerang. And when I went in there, Heavy D was in there. Uh, I remember Martin was there and a few other people. And they were kind of doing a round robin. I read with Heavy D. I really wanted to read with Martin. That's my boy. Man, come on, man. We're boys. And they, we finally did. Everything was taken care of. I mean, I, I could see that, you know. Reggie was trying to get a look, trying to see who looked best, who sounded best, who meshed, who had the right chemistry. Um, but when I left that day, I did not think I got this movie and I didn't think that they wanted me in it. It all worked out. Mm. And Keenan goes, yeah, you can do the movie. Now, I just found out a few years ago that, so what I would do is I would do, he said, you can't miss any shows. So I would basically go, and miss all of rehearsal. I was there for the read through of In Living Color where we read all the sketches 
then after the table read, much like SNL, there's usually twice as much material as you see on the show. That was the first edit. From then, you rehearse for like four, four days, three days, and you put it on its feet and film it. So I would leave after the table read, get on a plane and fly to New York and film and then fly back on the day of taping. Hmm. We took MGM Grand. That was me and Martin. <laughs> People who don't know, MGM Grand was like a semi-private airline. They only went New York and Vegas, I think. They took old planes, but they refurbished them. So first class was like, it was like a private jet. You know, you had yeah. these park around your chairs. The, the stewardesses would come and go, how would you like your omelet today? And all this stuff. So that's what we would do. We would do, uh, but anyway, I always thought Fox knew. You know, I always thought the network knew that, you know, and they signed off. Keenan told me later that, they never knew. He didn't tell them because he knew if he would have asked Fox, Fox wouldn't let me do it. So talk about a boss move. Talk about a dude doing a solid. That is what he did. He never told me until <clears throat> I think about five years ago. Because wow. as we got in and the deal he made with the Hudlins, he said, just have him here on shoot day. So my part expanded. You know how it is. Movies, ne they never stay on schedule. It's like, we need you more. We have this new scene. And they kept calling Keenan and they would come to me and they'd be like, man, you got to go back because he won't let you film. You know, and I was like, what? <laughs> but I had no idea. I had no idea that that was what was going on. So, you know, he's just the best. It's an important, Eddie's my all-time guy. It's mm -hmm. an important Eddie movie because he has this run that's like, you know, it's like a Jor like Jordan 91 to 98 kind of run. Tiger Woods. Yeah. It's just like, it's all time. It's iconic. It, 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 very few people are going to be able to compete with it historically. Mm -hmm. And then, and then there's, he, he kind of lays back a little bit and then he, it's almost like a comeback movie, even though I, I don't know if people felt that way at the time, but it was kind of like him reasserting himself as like, no, no, I am still Eddie mm -hmm. Murphy. I'm still going to open awesome movies and I'm still fucking here. Well, you know, his, his talent never wavered. Right. Well, it, especially at that time, when you are the elephant in the room and literally when you do a deal, when you sign a deal, you make everyone millionaires. That's where Eddie was. So 10% of Eddie, that's going to make me a millionaire. So there are a lot of interests at hand. A lot of everybody's trying to get you know, do, do this project that I brought you. There was always that, you know, I really, I really loved Eddie, loved him, loved hanging out with him and stuff. And I remember we were at, at Bubble Hill, Martin and I one night, and this is the difference between me and Martin Lawrence. Martin was like, his head was blowing up. I remember Eddie left to go to the bathroom. He was like, oh my God, we're here at Bubble Hill. And he said, I want this. Now, at the same time, I was there. Bull Hill, it, it was like, um, it was like, uh, like it was a, like his Graceland, right? Yeah, but bigger. Than, I mean, it was it was like hanging out in a customized Four Seasons. It really, it was huge. And but inside, I was saying to myself, God, I hope I never need this. That was the difference between Martin and I. Um, Martin got it. So in retrospect, I guess I should have said, I'm I'm going to get this. <laughs> 
But you were a little older than Martin at that point. You probably had a little bit more of a perspective. Yeah, I mean, also it's just desire, where our heads were coming from. Martin and I, I know Martin forever. He and I auditioned for, uh, in Living Color, was, I auditioned with Martin. I auditioned with Chris Rock, Susie Essman. The final, yeah, the final. I remember Susie was there going, you guys should do this show. I don't want to, because she didn't want to move from L, uh, New York. She's New York. She's like, I don't want to do this. And uh, she didn't, but love Susie Essman. Anyway, um, so during Boomerang, one of Eddie's mantras was he wanted to be like the black Cary Grant, which doesn't lend itself to a lot of comedy. But one of the th- reasons why I think that film worked so well is because we rehearsed. We improv for three weeks. Where Eddie, wherever Eddie was, we would fly there and we would go scene by scene. All of Eddie and Martin's nice scenes. That's why I feel like they were so good. And they were concentrated improv. So uh, uh, the director was there, Reggie Hudlin. He had his assistant and a note taker. And he would go, like in Jim, he would say, let's do this scene. And we'd do over and over and over, out of hours, three, four hours we'd work. And at the end, they'd cut it down because he'd say, or, or if we wandered off into some tangent, he'd go, no, 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 go back to your, you guys are talking about David's girlfriend or his dating, go back, go back to that. So he would guide it. So when we came back to shoot it, it was all the best stuff. They had honed from those. And also it was genius because it was, it allowed Eddie, I didn't know Eddie. I knew Martin, I didn't know that Eddie. But it allowed our friendship to, to, to be melded together. And so yeah. we had chemistry and relationship uh, by the time, by that first day, we knew each other, uh, which was really great. You know, I noticed that when I was doing the research for that podcast, mm-hmm. people didn't do comedies like that back then. Like you would have like in the eighties when everybody was on drugs and they're doing Caddyshack and they're basically like, oh shit, we need a scene with Bill Murray and Chevy Chase. Let's yeah. just, let's just ad lib something in the shed. But yeah. it wasn't really boomerang. I think was one of the first ones. And then you see in the two thousands, this became a staple for Apatow. When he's doing all his comedies, right? A lot of ad-libbing, a lot of like, we, we never know where this is going to go. Let's just keep the cameras rolling. Well, Judd, Judd used to hang out at In Living Color. He was like 19. Really? And, oh, yeah. Judd would hang out and he would hang out with Jim Carrey and that stuff. And I'd be like, why are you hanging out with teenagers? This dude's a juvenile delinquent. Well, he should be in school. Why is he here? He was really sweet. Uh, you never know. Who knew? Who, who knew that Judd would become, you know, the hugest, most influential in that, especially in that genre, like like romantic comedies, that kind of stuff. His music movies are wonderful. He was a kid. He wanted to be a stand-up, and I he was selling jokes. Um, and that's how I remember him. He and his mom too. His mom was like a music supervisor. She had all the rights to every song. As a matter of fact, she would introduce herself. And and she'd give you her card and she'd go, if you ever do a movie, I got the song for you. And I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was weird. I remember when In Love and Color launched, I was excited. I'm just a white kid in New England. I knew Jim Carrey from the Rodney Dangerfield HBO special. And he did like the Clint Eastwood and the Charles Bronson. 
And he did like the most, the 10 most amazing minutes I think I'd ever seen where he's just like, he was just becoming these different people. And you just kind of, you mark those people in your head and you're like, that guy, that's something good's going to happen with that guy. Then he ended up on your show. It's like, oh, that guy's on that show. I'm going to watch it. <laughs> and then fall in love with all these other people on that show. That was my gateway to it. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to explain how important of a show that was just because between your show and Arsenio, um, yeah. there was this this entire culture coming on the television that just wasn't there in the 80s. And then all of a sudden it was there. And it was like, oh, I, I felt like this door was opening up to me, all of these different talents, these jokes, these inside jokes, these conversations. It just, how was I, I was living in Connecticut. How was I going to see any of this stuff? Well, first of all, I never thought Living Color was going to get picked up um, because it was just out there. I mean, no network is going to let, there was no, so there was no HBO Showtime Netflix option. It was just the three big networks. They're not going to do it. Fox was not even a network, which they told us every time we tried to renegotiate. But uh, so we did this pilot. The pilot was an hour long. Now, Jim Carrey, who I didn't know, but Damon and Jim had done this movie called Earth Girls Are Easy. And it was like Gina a, Davis. Yes, yeah. Jeff Goldblum, I think, was on there. Uh, they became friends. Also, they knew each other from doing stand-up, you know? And so I think he was really uh, responsible for bringing Jim on to the show because the whole thing was like, we can get off, man. It's not going to be like, because we'd all done pilots. I'd done pilots. Some of us hadn't, but the main guys, Jim had a deal, you know, for his own sitcom. We all been through that. And that year, I auditioned for a over 20 pilots. And, you know, they're all the same. It's like, you know, maybe, maybe uh, David can play Rashawn, you know, the Negro friend and stuff like that. <laughs> but there was in Living Color, but my agents didn't want me to do it. My nobody, my, I didn't have a manager, my lawyer, because they knew there was not going to be any money. Well, no. and also we should mention just for people listening who don't know the history of this, like Fox when you say Fox wasn't really a network yet, it was barely a network. They, that was when the Simpsons was starting. They, they didn't get football until 1994. And I think when they got football, yeah, that's, but when, that's when Fox became like, oh, Fox. But it was very patchwork, I think, until then. Well, it, was, it had something to do with affiliates. The number of affiliates that they were able to secure nationwide. And uh, anyway, so we do this pilot. The pilot was an hour long. And we just went buck wild. We did whatever the fuck we wanted to do. And, uh, but, it, but it took like a year to get picked up. So wherever I would go and work in television, the crew, the camera guys would be like, man, I saw this shit that you were in, which is the funniest fucking tape. So it was being passed around, like this bootleg tape. I did an episode of ALF. <laughs> which by the way you were banned if you called alf muppets they would kick you off the set they were like mm. and they were muppets you know alf was a fucking muppet okay. he's a mean drunk though alf <laughs> he was but i just remember that they pulled me to the side and said man i'll say one word i was like what <laughs> <laughs> but yeah man all the dudes on alf all the crew the boom guy were like oh my god what's the name of that shit you know, and they, we even got written up in uh, Vanity Fair. You know, Barry Diller was, was the head of the network. He would come 
to some run-throughs. I remember we were doing Men On, rehearsing it, and Barry Diller standing there glowering next to us. And I'm like, it was the most heterosexual Men On rehearsal ever. It just kind of ended with, I hate it. Two snaps in a circle. (laughs) So it, it it was like, it was like uh, the network was bullied into picking us up. So when they picked us up, it was game on. I remember we did the pilot and the audience was just primed. So when you were saying the world was changing, it was timing. And one of the key elements was Rosie Perez. Because Rosie Perez became kind of like the unofficial music supervisor. There was no music supervisor so to speak, but it was all rosy because she was a conduit to the hip hop world. Her office was full of tapes and 12 inch uh, singles, all kind of shit. And she was like, you got to get this group. You got to get this group. You got to get this rapper, that rapper. So we got everybody in that moment who is important in hip hop came through in living color. And it was time. The clothes, the language, the music, all of it was right then in that moment, which was all about hip hop. People thought we shot in New York because it had such a New York flavor. It was such a fascinating contrast to SNL, which was also having a great run at that time, right? SNL had made, it was probably the best from a talent standpoint, probably the deepest roster they had from 89 to 92, where they just had you know, Phil Hartman, Mike Myers, um, Dana Carvey, Jane Hooks, like they're loaded and you guys were loaded. And it just felt like, it felt like this era to me looking back where it was like, holy shit, I can't believe we had all that comedy. It was like the Negro Leagues versus. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they would have like Nirvana would be on SNL, right? Yeah. And, and you guys would have whatever the biggest hip hop or rap act was. Yeah. I remember that, it's just planets, diggable planets. When they when they came in, they were so different, so wild, man. And the one thing about hip hop then, there were so many groups, really young performers, and so many groups and artists who had one hit. It was like the '60s, you know. The hit would be huge, but it wasn't like they came back with you know Sgt. Pepper. I mean, that's kind of what they did. No, you know, people were getting ripped off. They. Immediately, a group would get big. Then you you sue the record company, that kind of shit. We never saw them again. But uh, well, MT and MTV wasn't playing really any of them. So oh, if no. it wasn't for your show or Arsenio, that was it. Those were the only two places they're getting on. And like the dudes, they would come on. Um, they would come on a show that they watched. And I say that because you know, as a kid, when you would watch Ed Sullivan and stuff. There would be like rock bands. Nobody watched Ed Sullivan. They were too hip for it, but they wanted to play Ed Sullivan. Yeah, they wanted to play because that was national exposure. No, man, all the kids here. When Marlon, uh, Marlon was in, I think he was in uh, freshman in college or maybe a senior in high school when we first started. And he called Keenan the next day and he said, "Man, y'all stopped crying last night." <laughs> it was like so. <laughs> Only three episodes of A Living Color aired and we won the People's Choice Awards. And I remember sitting there at the Emmys 
we went to the Emmys, you know, we went to People's Choice Awards and I was sitting next to Sean Wayans. And I think there's, um, he just burst out crying, like when they said, and the winners, because we didn't know we, there were only three, three episodes, four episodes, something like that. And it just blew up. It blew up like that, like that big. And for once in my life, I was on the cool show. Usually I was on the show where they go, you're on what? Uh, okay, it's three girls plus Tony. It's it's on CBS. And they're like, you know, Black people are like, no, nah, I never heard of it. Yeah, well, I'm on there. You know. So well, this was finally that show where everyone wanted tickets. You come down the green room, everybody would be in there. All like big, huge, you know, Hollywood stars and shit. And I was like, damn, I'm on this show. And it was great. The first two years were just crazy. And Keenan would be there. He said, it's your, come on, this is your show. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't want to wait for a writer to write a character, write it yourself. I'll put it on. If it's funny, I'll put it on. And so, you know, the way we would do, we had this table where we would eat breakfast in the morning before we started rehearsal, usually around 10 o'clock. And so we would come in there. Most of the characters you saw started there. We were making each other laugh. Jim did Fire Marshal Bill for weeks and until we would be crying with laughter. He was like, Jim, you have to do this. And he's like, we were all like, you can't. It's too much. You can't play a horribly disfigured third degree burns scars on a fire on a fireman and play for comedy and finally we just egged him on you have got to put this on the show and he did it and it was just like i'm going in and he did it and, and that became a character the same with like i did uh, mr mcafee who was my high school guidance counselor his name was irving berg he lost his leg in world war ii and he told us every day, but you know, I lost my leg in the war. Fuck did you do? Huh? <laughs> Greer, you're an asshole. <laughs> and so I got a letter from Mr. Berg. He was retired and he said, you know, I'm a counts camp counselor. He taught art at, at this camp. And he said, all these kids talk about this character you do on your show. And none of them believe that it's me and that I know you. Would you please write back so I can prove to these kids that we know each other? And I wrote back. I said, no. <laughs> but he was a great guy. Great teacher. Great guy. Well, think like 1990 LA, all the shit that's going on. Because Magic and the Lakers are still riding high. Sure. Yeah. And you have Arsenio's kind of... At, kind of like hitting his apex and your show's going on there and yeah. there's just a lot going on and well they were enemies they were like like okay so keenan and arsenio and eddie they all knew each other but like spike lee hated us when we made fun of him he would call the station he would call rosie he seriously oh he hated it he hated it. He hated it, man. And Arsenio, too, which only made Akino come in and go, oh, I'm going to do him again. <laughs> he would, we would do more sketches. So, like, when I would do, you know, Martin got his show, and I started doing Martin. He let me do it, like, three times, four times. After the third time, he was like, that's it. So, 
you know, I, that was my other show. So it was very territorial. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, I could have said, well, I'm going to get a lawyer. I'm going to sue. You can't, you know, it was, it never got to that level. Cause it was like, that was our hood. This is our gang. That was your gang. And uh, yeah, everybody's cool now. I mean, I see Arsenio. I saw him back then. He was cool. Like, so when I was supposed to do Arsenio Hall, when I, you know, signed this deal to do Boomerang. And at the last moment, I had to fly to New York to do a table read. And I was supposed to do Arsenio that night. And I remember watching that episode and Arsenio was, basically said in his monologue, uh, David's not going to be here tonight. But it's cool. It's cool because I know for a fact he's with my boy, Eddie. So we're not going to light him up. <laughs> like that. Wow. Like, yeah, it was like, okay. Okay, cool, 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 cool. So, uh, well, was, you know, the, the other thing about way back when was just there was a lot of people that were less, less. I mean, now we have what seven hundred channels, all these streaming services with TikTok. Back yeah. then, it was like you could get like fifteen million people watching just a random Saturday night episode of of Saturday Night Live. Here's what it was: I did a pilot. Well, I actually did a TV show. It was by the Charles Brothers. The Charles Brothers did Cheers, so I was yeah. on the next show they did after Cheers. So what was when, that? I don't, what show was that? I don't even remember. It was called All is Forgiven. It was about the worst, lowest ranked soap opera on air. And I played this black television repairman who is a soap opera addict and they hired me as a writer. So, so I was talking to these dudes when I was doing Gerard. I was doing Gerard's show, the, the Carmichael show. And I said- I like that show. Yeah, well, they said, they said, you know, they canceled us because our ratings dipped. And one of the young writers goes, well, what were your ratings? We debuted to 20 million people. And they dipped down to 18 million. Then they took us off. That, you gotta, you know how many people that is? That's crazy, man. That's how many people. When you had a hit back then, everybody saw that shit. Yeah, it was like some. There was some Twitter account that I like. I think it's called Retro News Now, and they published the ratings for like 1976 shows, the top 15. Every show was 16 million and up. The oh, good yeah. times. Good times was like 18 million people per episode. Yeah, and that should. wasn't even like the special episodes where JJ oh, gets shot. Yeah. Just like the okay. generic episodes. Yes, that's why when you when you you should see why when they canceled the show, it's like wow, the ratings dip. But wait, I was going to tell you this story. So I, I was doing heavy into martial arts back then in Living Color. And in terms of cultural influence, I was in our locker room and there was this big black kid and he had all the little peewee kids lined up on a bench and he was lecturing them. And he said, what are you going to watch tonight? And they all said, Arsenio Hall. And he said, why? Because he's the coolest dude on TV. That's right. And then they and they went out and I, I was watching this and I went, oh wow, this is a cultural moment. No, that's how big Arsenio's show was. Yeah, now, I don't even know what happened, but um, for a few years his show was crazy. Like I remember he had like Liz Taylor, Elizabeth Taylor, MC Hammer, and like a classical musician all on the couch at once talking. That cultural, racial, ethnic mix was never seen before on television. The way he was able to just bring people on like that. It was crazy. I don't, 
I don't know what happened either. It it was that it definitely was happening for three, four years. And yeah. then it just seemed like it petered out. And I, I've never heard a great explanation for it. Well, I think a lot of it, because, you know, uh, as a kid growing up, are my favorite shows, the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, Adam's Family, that kind of stuff. In my memory, I grew up with them, meaning they were on the air for 10 years. In fact, they weren't. When you right. go back and look, it was four years, three years. It wasn't like MASH. Some of those really great shows, only a few years, man. Um, so I, I think it's more healthy now when creators are not trying to, of course, we all want it, are not trying to go for, a, you know, a 15-year run. Uh, rather, we're going to do the best uh, that we can in maybe six episodes, two years, uh, then we're out. You know, because a lot of shows after three or four years, they need to take that off. They really do. I just realized I, my, I have to rename myself on my Zoom because that's my daughter. Oh, we, can, we can cut that out. <laughs> I will. We got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now you're playing Jamie's dad yes. on this new Netflix show. And Jamie was on, was he on? I can't remember. Was he, he joined in Living Color, what, halfway through or it's like second third year. season? Second yeah. year. I think it was a second year. Yeah. So that, then, so he comes in after it's already established. So there's like a little bit of a little brother thing with that. But then he became Jamie on that show. And then you watch him over the next 30 years. At some point, I think it was Ali when he plays Bundini Brown. It's like, holy shit, this guy's like, is he going to have like this whole acting career? I wasn't expecting it. You just thought he was a comedian. You know, I auditioned for Bundini Brown like three times. And, but you I was did? Doing, yeah. But I was doing my own show is actually a direct conflict. And finally, I think uh, whatever happened, Jamie got it because he deserved it. And uh, for me, it wasn't Ali. It was what came after. Because Ali was great, but then he did this movie with Tom Cruise. Then he did Any Given Sunday. So he built a resume. I mean... Yeah, you're right. It was actually, you're right. Any Given Sunday was the first one where you're like, oh, and then Ali, it's like, oh, so now he can play characters. And then it was off. You're right. And he well, gives the Tom first. Cruise movie was just basically him and Tom Cruise in a cab with Jada Pinkett, which is collateral. Yeah. Sneaky, great LA movie. So Jamie, by the mid 2000s, all of a sudden he's an A plus list actor. And yeah. I, it, I really enjoyed his career. I've, I I've enjoyed to. all of the choices. I think he's always relevant, but he cannot like be in anything for two years. But I don't feel like his. You know, any his star doesn't fade. It's not like, hey, what happened to Jamie Foxx? Like he's he's just kind of stayed cool for thirty years, which I think, as an A lister, is almost impossible. Well, I know, you know, I know Jamie. I know his life story, which more people know now, and I know his abilities. You know, he's a classically trained musician. That was his major. He was always the class clown, though. And so he kind of dipped into comedy. So he always had this music in his back pocket. When we were doing Lemon Color, he had like a little recording studio he set up in his dressing room. He had like a uh, tape player, all kind of digital stuff, you know. And I was waiting for that. And, and I think Fox signed him to uh, a deal because, you know, they had a music thing, which is what he really wanted. And... Now the world is seeing it. And you're right. It, it is to watch. There was one 
year where he and Jim Carrey were both at the Golden Globes, nominated. And I was watching and it was like, wow, this is so crazy because we all came from the same place. I mean, me, him, Jennifer uh, uh, Lopez, uh, Damon. I mean, that show launched a lot, a lot of, lot of talent. What made you want to do this show with Jamie? Um, you know, we've always been cool. And it's like the thing, you know, I see him at a few parties a few times a year. And the conversation was always the same. He's like, hey, man, what's up? You looking good? What's going on? You got my number. I got your number. Call me. Hey, man, let's do something. Yeah, let's do something. He just keeps rolling. I was last year, I was doing a, a revival of Soldier's Play on Broadway in New York. And I got this weird message. It was a text from my stand-up agent. Now, usually, you know, people who do stand-up, you have that one agent, because that's their forte. So she goes, would you be open to having a conversation with Jamie Foxx? I got this from his lawyer. He and I have the same lawyer. And I was like, yeah, because I knew what this was about. It was going to be some Tarantino shit, you know? Mm. Probably going to be, like, dark, moody, dramatic and we about to get these Oscars. I was like, yes. So, so we finally talk and he said, man, I'm going to do this um, comedy. And I was like, yeah, but it's going to be dark and crazy. And People are going to die. Yeah, right. And I'm going to get this Oscar. And he goes, actually, it's a sitcom. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he said, he said, man, listen, uh, it's what we both really believe. The country is going through PTSD. I mean, after Trump, COVID, all this shit, man, we really, uh, people are trying to get these laughs, man. And before we get too old, I want to I wanna do this, you know? And I was like, okay, but where are you going to do it? And he said, on Netflix, man, we could do anything we want. And I was like, okay, cool. So he said, um... Don't worry about the script because it had me, it has you as my father. Um, because we can change it. And I said, No, 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 leave it as your dad. This is television. I mean, to me, it's funny that people all of a sudden they're like, chronologically, biologically, well, physiologically, is that possible? Jamie and I are like 11 years apart. I mean, you know, you see television, we're actors, you know, uh, Golden Girls, Estelle Getty was younger than I am now. She played. I don't remember anyone going, but is this realistically, can she be you know, their mom? No, man, with this comedy, okay? So uh, he did that. We got Bentley Evans, who created uh, Jamie's show, Jamie Foxx show. He worked with Martin. Known ben- Bentley was Keenan's runner when we did um, Partners in Crime. So that's how far back we go. Uh, what I'm telling you is, you know, to walk in a room and you don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to tell people, this is how I work. This is who I really am. And hopefully, this is my voice. No, we all know each other. So I don't, I don't have to expend any of that energy, man. It was mostly him encouraging me to go farther, do more. Because I was like, he said I could say anything, but you know, everybody says that. Bill, I want you to do a show. You can talk about anything you want. And you're like, yeah, okay. But I'm mm. your boss. But I won't really be your boss because you can say anything. 
you say anything, they're like, get off, get out. You can't say that. So I was just was kind of like, I'm going to do this script. And Jamie, every day, for the first week, at the end of the day, he'd send me a text. He said, you know, you really can say anything you want, David. This is just like a guideline. And I'm like, mm, yeah, okay. Or he would catch me, Bentley, as I was getting in the car. He'd say, yeah, I want to tell you one note. And I was like, what? Say anything you want. And so after like three or four days, we're doing this uh, scene and we started improvising and Jamie goes, go, go, do it, do it, do it, do it. And then we just, it just blew open. It blew up and blew open. And from then, uh, never looked back. So it's been really fun. It's been really fun, really relaxing, you know. I remember I came out, I think November 2002 to work for Kimmel's show when it was launching. And then we had that first year. At some point, you either, you must have been on. I mean, I'm sure we pulled you on at some point. Um, but I remember they were like, Dag's the best. Dag's the greatest. Dag's the greatest guy. He's like, he's like one of the only real guys. Like, this would be great. And you've, you've kept that your whole career, which I think is pretty rare, right? You, you just have like a unanimous approval rating with, with other people in the industry. Well, I do, I do remember, uh, yeah, I can have bad days like anybody else, but I don't I, believe it. <laughs> well, I, I have, but you know, here's the deal. Uh, it is who I am. It's an authentic portrayal of me. And also, you know, as a young actor, I encountered older actors or older performers. We've all had that experience. You know, one of your idols, you meet them and they're a fucking nightmare. Like, Oh God, you know, they ruin everything. I never wanted to be that dude, you know, because I've, I've gone through it. I've gone, I've seen it. I've had to work with those guys and you just like, what a fucking douchebag, you know? So I try not to do that. And if it's that, that means I shouldn't be doing this job. So I'll go do something else. Also, there are a lot of things to play, man. I never thought 30 years ago, my career would be like this at my age today. I never, because th- I thought, you know, I'd be like in Santa Barbara or someplace, you know, retired. Um, no, man, this is, and I feel like I'm finally figured out how to do what I do. Uh, and I'm much better at it because of all this experience. I put in my 10,000 hours. So I'm just trying to have fun. and. It is a joy. I do know, you know, I was listening to, um, I was actually, I read a review of this Bob Dylan concert. And this is a recent Bob Dylan concert, you know, before COVID. And the reviewer goes, at the end of the concert, Bob Dylan stood there and he was very emotive saying, you know, it means so much to me that you guys come out and you see me now. He was in the 70s. And he never did that. He barely, he was like Miles Davis back in the day. He barely faced the audience. He was like, fuck you. It's my art, my poetry, and I'll stomp off. But, you know, you can get older and we cherish, we process things differently. So that is who and what I am. And also, so like with Jamie and I coming back together after all this time, that is really the vibe that's on the set. You know, because... 
30 years ago, we were all young. We were like young, hungry lions. I want to get that. I want two steaks. I want, I want your spot. And it's different now. You know, we're older, uh, more mature, and we just want to enjoy and do great things, which allows for more generosity and uh, sharing, man. Go on and get yours. Go on and get off, because that's going to make me better. You know? Before we go, I have sports questions for you. Make yes. I'm from um, Detroit. I'm a Michigan alumni. You got to know that. Just like my man, Jalen Rose, who loves you. The pod five. Aren't you happy we did the Fab Five documentary? I felt like that was weirdly and imp- weirdly important document of a team that really mattered. I mean, that's, the, that's probably the 30 for 30 I'm the proudest that we did. You know, the one element that was missing is the Fab Five came of age. It was exactly in sync with In Living Color. You know, it was so. So when I say culturally, musically, where their heads were at as young players was a, absolutely in line with In Living Color. All of it. Uh, I remember them, and I'm I'm shaking. I tip my head to the side because I must. I've watched the Fab Five five times already. I just watch it over and over again. Love that. Love all of it. And um, Jalen Rose, man. Jalen Rose is a gift. What a gift. I love him, man. Listening to him, watching those guys. Jalen and Jacoby, big fan. (laughs) Um, Michael or LeBron? All right, I'm going to tell you a story. You have to be in one camp or the other. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to say Michael, and I'm going to tell you when In Living Color was popping. They did the upfronts. For people that don't know, once a year, uh, this is when everybody flies to New York, all the networks within the same two weeks, and they all announce their new schedules, new shows. So every year, that would coincide with the Bulls and the Knicks meeting and playing in New York City during the upfronts. Uh, I remember one time Robert Townsend and I, we just bum-rushed. We got on the elevator. We went <laughs> and we just rode to the top. You know, the VIP entrance takes you up to like this VIP bar area and shit. That's where everybody was hanging out. We were hanging out there. They never asked us for tickets. So when the game started, we just walked down. And for the whole game, we would just go sit with people. And then the guards would be like, dude, y'all got to go. So we were courtside. We were hanging out. And the Knicks were waving at us. The Bulls were the whole game. Until finally we got kicked out. But we did that for, for two or three. So my memories are of that time of year when the Knicks were great. And uh, the Bulls were, Michael Jordan was banging. And uh, just, I was on a living color, staying in this suite, <laughs> going shopping. And we would see Michael Jordan, man. And the Bulls killing it in the garden. So come on, man. I love LeBron. But they're not the same. I don't understand why people compare them. They're not the same. It's like comparing Jim Brown to a quarterback. Fair. I just wanted the younger generation to hear the your. I figured your Michael take would kind of align. Yeah, but you know, when I was a kid, um, my parents would, you know, the generationally, we loved Muhammad Ali, and they were like, "Well, he's no Brown Bomber," and I'd be like, "Who? 
who would name themselves the Brown Bomber? <laughs> who the fuck is it? It's Joe Lewis. That was my parents, my uncles. They're like, Joe Lewis whooped the Nazis. And I'd be like, ah. you know, and I remember seeing Joe Lewis because he was from Detroit at a funeral one time. And he was an old battered boxer. And my mom was going, you know, in hushed tones. That is Joe Lewis. Look over there. He was at the church and I saw this beat up old dude. I was like, you know, we saw Muhammad Ali on American Bandstand. That's like being on MTV. That's being on like TikTok now. He was a rock star. Mm. Mom and Ali would go on and do poetry. Nobody ever did that shit. Okay? So, uh, same deal. They should not be compared. LeBron can never do what Jordan did. Six for six. Stop. Stop talking about it. That's old man talk. He can do other shit. He's going to be great. He already is great. He's already redefined the game. I love everything about him. They're just not the same. Man. Stop. So, let's say... October 1990, you're in a nightclub in L.A., Jordan walks in, Magic walks in, and Eddie Murphy walks in all at the same time in three different entrances. Yeah. Where do people's eyes go? Who who owns the room? I'm going to say Eddie because, wait, did you say 90s or 80s? I'm going to say 1990. So you've had it in Lemon Color for a year. I'm going to say Eddie, and I'll tell you why. Because you said club. Club. Now, maybe if you would have said an arena, a sports bar, that's different than a club. Because Eddie was a creature of the clubs, especially back then. So, yeah, man, I would say probably Eddie. and Because that's how people, he would roll with his entourage, all of them, thick rolling out into the night no cell phones you could do that people weren't you know uh i would i would say probably off the top of my dome i would say eddie because eddie was huge 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 i asked when i was doing tv with magic and we would just we me and Jalen would be in a room with him for eight hours watching basketball and i would we would just ask him ridiculous questions and one time we we asked him hugh hafner and dr jerry buss decide they want the same girl in 1980, which one of them gets the girl? And he was like, Dr. Bus. Like he made a face. He he was like, Dr. Bus, it's done. Dr. Bus gets her. Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner, Hefner, because you got to think the girl's young girl, Hugh Hefner can get you the centerfold. Dr. Bus can get you. That was my argument. Magic was adamant it was Dr. Bus. He was like, Dr. Bus, if Dr. Bus laid his eyes on you, it was over. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I wasn't rolling like that. I know, first of all, because you know, Magic went to Michigan State. I went to Michigan. He's from yeah. Michigan, Irving, not Magic. That's the first thing you know, right? Um, he's just a sweet oh, guy. Yeah. We always do time, Tybo. People don't know, back in the day, Tybo was like a club, dude. You'd be in the back. You saw everybody. Everybody was in Tybo. Sports stars. What's the thing? And then everybody started getting back problems from it. All right, last question. Yeah. They always talk about... um like Belushi, Chris Farley, how just in a room when nobody's trying to be funny, there are just people that are like the fucking funniest. Like they, it's just clear in a whole big room. Mm-hmm. They're just funnier. They're going to try to out alpha funny everybody else in the room. And that's who they are. Who was it? Who was it in your circles in the nineties? Was there somebody that in the room was just funnier than everybody else? 
Or was it just everybody was funny? To me. Uh, well, you know, because my personality in those things, I was really kind of quiet and self-conscious. I didn't really hang out because it was too weird, man, to be with like Eddie, uh, Arsenio, uh, Keenan. I mean, Eddie was the alpha, but Eddie was very cool. Right. Uh, when like, cause when we did Boomerang, we basically made each other laugh for 15 hours. And here was the dynamic. I thought Martin was the most naturally funny. That just when he described, uh, what did you guys have for breakfast? We're falling on the floor the way he described how he made an omelet. So they're all they're all talking, telling these stories. I mean, it's hilarious. I'm crying laughing. And at one point, Eddie, they're talking, we're talking, they're talking about girls, you know, you know, this girl, that girl. And Eddie goes, David, you ever date someone famous? And I said, with no irony, I dated a girl who had a, a sad card once. And of course they fell out. But that was not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was. So no, I mean, that's what I, I mean, so for me, it was Eddie in that situation. I was always scared to meet Richard Pryor because when I did my first job I did with Lynette McKee on Broadway, she said several times, she said, oh my God, I wish you could meet Richard Pryor. And for me, Richard Pryor was like my Charlie Parker. He, that was the dude. That was the major comedy influence to this day. And but so Lynette leans close and she goes, he would either love you or he would hate you and want to kill you. <laughs> I just went, I'm good. So I had many <laughs> opportunities to meet him and I just was like, mm, I'll wave, you know, like you that. You probably played so, that correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll tell you one last story. I went to a Hollywood party at this uh, woman's house and Steve Martin was there and who else? Uh, Steve Martin and SCTV. Uh, Martin, Martin, Martin. Oh, Martin Short. Martin Short. He came in. So it was Terry Gar's house and Terry Gar was a friend and she goes, David, I want everyone to see how funny you are. So already it was weird. I'm in and we're playing charades and it's Steve and Martin going head to head like it was a one-on-one -on -one game with LeBron. Oh my God. Yeah, and Michael Jordan. And I just sat there and they were sweating. Shoes were off. They were like, you know, David, do that squirrel. And I'm like, I'm, I'm good. Tag out, tap out. Oh, yeah, it was intense, man. It was like, I was exhausted just watching them. And yeah, those were two alphas and nobody was given an inch. They were like, no, I'm going to fucking kill you. So That's theirs. All right, my ear pods are dying and we kept you for an hour. I'm really happy <laughs> that you have the show, Man. Jamie. I'm happy you came on. It was great to see you. So I'm happy. glad you're well. Yes. Yes, Thank man. You. Let's talk soon and let's talk about some more sports. I'm not baseball. I'm just waiting. Let me ask you a real quick question while I have you. The Lakers, yeah. man. What's up? I I don't think LeBron's as injured as everybody says. Is he? Oh, you think he's you think he's rope doping it? No, I think he twisted his ankle. I saw it. He twisted his ankle, but I also think it happened at a time when you need to sit down. He was going to sit down anyway. He knows he's got to come back right, and this is just what happened. You know, they they need to be careful about 
making sure they're a top six seed and not fucking around with those playing games is the is the piece. That's what they they can fall to a six seed and it'll be a tougher road. But if they're healthy, they'll still be the favorites. But once you go into that seven seed, now you got extra playoff games, you got extra tension. So that's well, what. As long as they're top six, they'll be fine. Okay, we're gonna see. I'm not convinced about Brooklyn because, as you know, anything can happen in the next two months. Okay, they're like a crazy super band where they could implode at any moment. Those are just my thoughts. I don't think the Clippers are going to win the championship this year. Okay, they could, but I don't think they will. That's all. What do you? It's gonna be a fascinating science experiment. Yep. Yeah. I can't wait. I think I think the playoffs are going to be really great this year. I, I they're yeah, all kind of crammed in. They're condensed. Yeah. It's be a lot of games. I agree with Nick Wright though. He said like you know Rondo 2016. That yeah, but it's 2021. So all that. I I just love basketball and I cannot wait myself. Anyway, it was great talking to you, man. And uh, take care. We'll talk soon. Great talking to you too. Thanks, Dex. See you, Kimmels, bro. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thank all right. you. Later. All right, that's it for the podcast. Coming back on Thursday with one more, including a very famous person. So we'll see you then.